Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Whenever his feet touch down back at Mount Olive someday, it's going because he's back to rain. But when he comes in the clouds, he's coming for his church. Amen. And we're going to meet him in the air. Hallelujah. Isn't that tremendous? That's a good, good old song that is very biblically founded. Amen. Upon the word of the Lord. We're going to be turning to the book of Psalms chapter 46 today. The book of Psalms chapter 46 today. I want to read just a few verses of scripture here this morning. Uh, one verse in particular that most, if not all, are probably familiar with uh, this morning. And so everybody's kind of balanced things out a little bit. We got front and back going on, but we, we were kind of balanced outside to side a little bit more than we were on Wednesday and such. So uh, Psalms 46, Psalms 46, going to read the first uh, three verses there. Glad to have uh, Judy and Anthony with us today from Tennessee and uh, we, we were, we've kind of, our personal family on that side have been on pause a little bit with COVID and such with the McBroom family. And so we skipped Christmas. And so we just trying to catch up. And, uh, and then my son, Trevor, uh, got sent home from school on Friday because of a possibility of being exposed to, to COVID. There was over 50 kids that were sent home because of a possibility. He has no symptoms, nothing's going on, but uh, we're just trying to be whatever. We're trying to just be I love the Lord. Psalms 46, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's the one that you're probably familiar with. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, Though the mountain shake with the swelling thereof, Salah. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. With the help of the Lord this morning, I'd like to speak to us today on God is our refuge. God is our refuge. Can, that say, can you say that with me this morning? God is our refuge. Lord Jesus, I come to you today. God, I'm grateful, Lord Jesus, among, Lord, a time, God, that we live, Lord. God, in circumstances and surroundings, God, that are imposing, Lord, upon us, God, that you are, God, that staple, sure, confident, steadfast refuge that we can find, Lord, consolation and help, Lord, and strength from. I pray, oh, Lord, today, God, minister to somebody this morning. God, speak and minister, Lord, to our heart today. Help Help them, Lord, to understand, God, that personal, Lord Jesus, refuge that they have in you and will not fail to thank you for it in the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. And the church say amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in Jesus' name. As you read through the book of Psalms, and this sometimes can also be uh, a pitfall even of the preacher and that is to attribute every single word that is in the book of Psalms. Sometimes we attribute every single word uh, to David as though David was the writer and the author of all 150 Psalms. But to do so is actually to do incorrectly. Because although David truly wrote uh, about or somewhere uh, almost probably half of, of the Psalms, uh, he did not write all of the Psalms. And many of them are written in a David style. In other words, they adopt his same type of style of writing, but there were other contributors and writers, if you will, of the Psalms outside of David. When you read throughout the scriptures, some of your Bibles may have the little headings before the chapters and they give some indication about who some of the other writers are. Some of those that are in the Psalms is Asaph, who was basically a worship leader, if you bring it to modern day terms, a worship leader uh, under the rule and the reign of David. But Asaph and his sons penned some of the Psalms. Solomon, David's son, also was one that had penned some Psalms. Even Moses uh, is attributed to 
to penning some of the Psalms. Another man by the name of Ethan and another one by Heman. Uh, that's not He-Man as we would know from years ago, but Heman uh, that, that, that pens some of the Psalms. And then like our Psalm this morning, Psalm chapter 46, there is a grouping of songs that the Bible says, and it tells us here, even in our little heading, that the sons of Korah were some of the writers of the Psalms. There, there are about 50 or so, or maybe even a little less Psalms in, in this book uh, that, that have no designation. We really don't know who penned them or who wrote them. The psalmist is unknown. And many times uh, when I'm preaching in Psalms, if I haven't looked up who wrote it, I'll just refer to it as a psalmist, whether it's Solomon or David or whoever it might be, just to try to be, you know, uh, uh, not speaking anything uh, incorrectly as though David wrote it and he didn't write it. So I just say the psalmist. And so these psalms or these songs, as many times they are posed, uh, they're written during moments of times of the, the, the Old Testament historical record. Many of the things that we see written in the psalms were written during times that we read in, in Kings and Chronicles and at other times. These psalms were inspired by events of the Old Testament record. And many times, according to who wrote them, who was the writer or the penner of the words, a psalm may gather a little bit more insight whenever you understand who the author was. We have a little understanding more so why they wrote something a certain way or why they framed it in certain words when you knew the author and particularly the life of the author and what that author may have faced. And so knowing the author may give us a greater appreciation then for a message of a particular psalm. And I believe this morning such is the case of Psalms 46. One only need to start reading this short little psalm and maybe read it through a few times before they realize that the author is underscoring that God is a refuge unto them. More specifically, though, they are not just saying that God is a refuge, you know, just like something that's very impersonal, like, you know, that man is a doctor or that guy over there, he's a mechanic. He, they're not just saying that God is a refuge, but they're very personal personal about it. God is my refuge. In other words, it's not like that man's a mechanic. No, he's my mechanic. He works on my cars. I, I got relationship with him. And so these guys are saying that God is our refuge. They repeat this more than once. They repeat it in the first verse, but it's also found in verse 7 and verse 11 when they say that the God of Jacob is our Refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Has been a mantra. It has been a chant throughout the history of Christianity for anyone that has fallen on unfortunate times. It is a reminder to us as Christians that God is our shelter and he is our protection and that he is our safety. Amen. And whenever we need any of those things, it can be found in the Lord our God. For that matter, when all of our worldly confidences of protection in this world and safety in this world, when all those things have been stripped from us it is comforting as a child of God to remember that when those things are gone God has been and will continue to be a, re a refuge unto us in spite of those type of losses in our personal lives what I'm saying this morning is this people have lost their homes and their jobs and their wealth and their health and they've lost some people the providers of their family such as their husbands or, or sons maybe in their home that would care for them and yet God for those people suffering those losses is still their refuge what I'm trying to convey today is that when their shelter has been lost and their homes have been destroyed God is still their shelter that when their protection has been lost and and they've, they, they've lost if you will good health and now they have poor health and they've lost members of their family that God in those moments is still their protection when safety has take been taken away from them because now they're unemployed and they don't have a job or it seems like like the wealth and the money that they once had, it's just barely there. That in all of those things that God 
is still their safety and their refuge. I remember as a younger boy growing up in this church and I remember when we used to have testimony services and there were just certain phrases and certain scriptures people led with whenever they gave testimonies. There, there's certain scriptures in God's word that people, you know you're going to hear that during testimony service. If you never learned anything in Sunday school, you're going to learn the verse during testimony service because there's some that's just used over and over. And I remember, I remember as a kid growing up many times people standing up to testify and leading with that verse number one. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I remember them misquoting that verse. And preachers have made sermons off them misquoting the verse. Many times they would say that God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. And, and preachers would preach, I want you to know it doesn't matter what time it is. God is your strength. And, uh, you know, you get inspiration from all kinds of places. But God, God is your strength and God is your refuge. He's your aid in many regards. Can I even say this morning, during the times that we've been living in, in many regards, he is our only hope. Because when the government has failed me and health has failed me and the system has failed me and everything else has failed me, I look to the rock that is higher than I and he's still my strength and he's still my refuge. Amen. He has proven it to us time and time again because we have over the past several months have eked out our days. Amen. With our health threatened, there's some people whose jobs have dissolved. Their wealth, if you will, has been somewhat stretched, but God in and through it all has been your refuge. He has become your hiding place in the middle of the storm. He's become the high place above all of the clouds of doubt and fear and dismay. He's become your high tower that you could run to because the Bible says the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous can run into it and be safe. He's been the shadow that I've been able to abide under because God is my refuge. Amen. The heading of this psalm indicates that it was written by the sons of Korah. It says for the sons of Korah which is literally of the sons of Korah. Interestingly enough, the headings of the Psalms are actually written in the Hebrew manuscripts. So they are very reliable concerning the validity of what's contained in those headings. The sons of Korah were acquainted with God as a refuge. Korah was the first cousin of Moses and Aaron, the deliverer and the high priest in the Old Testament. These three shared the same Grandpa Kohath, they were of the tribe of Levi. Korah is a division of the Levitical priests called the Kohathites. And so the sons of Korah, being of a lineage and a line of Levites, understood what it meant for God to be a refuge. The Old Testament tells us that the Levitical line, whenever they came into the land of promise, there was no allotment of land that was safe for them. Remember Joshua, when they're about ready to go over into Jordan, he's going to disperse the land according to the tribes. Each, each tribe had a particular uh, outline or survey of land that belonged to them. But the tribe of Levi, there was no allotment that was set aside for the tribe of Levi from which the sons of Korah were a part of. According to the scripture, the Lord had chosen them to be his, his people that would work around the tabernacle and in things per, that were holy. And so the Bible says he did not give them per se a land of their own, but that the Lord was their portion. As everybody else was getting portions of land and of hills and valleys and trees and things, he said the Lord would be their portion but as a provision for these Levitical tribes the Lord says here's what I'm going to do you're not going to have any land per se of your own but I'm going to give to you 48 cities that's going to be drawn from the other tribes in other words I'm going to take a few cities of this tribe and a few cities of that tribe and a few cities of that tribe and I'm going to assign them to you 48 cities so you don't you don't have anything that you can say is truly yours you're just basically you know uh, inhabiting somebody else's city. You're inhabiting another one of the tribe's lands. But of those 48 cities that were given to the Levitical tribe of which the sons of Korah were a part of, six of those cities 
were cities of refuge. Someone say refuge. They were cities of refuge. And so these sons of Korah, part of the Levitical line, some of them living and inhabiting some of these different cities, some of them even maybe some of these cities of refuge, they understood the concept and this idea of refuge. Amen. Even early on throughout their lives because these cities of refuge were created with purpose and created with intention to be a shelter to those who would come to it for their aid. They were to be a protection they were to be a safety and in more than just the words that I spoke there they were particularly for those who were guilty of some type of crime or some type of accidental murder or accidental taking of a life they were there for those who were presumably guilty to provide safety for the guilty protection for the guilty Shelter for the guilty. They were six cities. Three of them were on the east side of Jordan and three of them were on the west side of Jordan. A city of refuge was to be easily accessible from all parts of the land. That's the reason why they had some on the east side of Jordan, some on the west side of the Jordan. It didn't matter where you lived. They wanted to make sure a city of refuge was accessible to you. Pre-adventure, you become guilty and need shelter and protection. It describes these cities of refuge that they're scattered all throughout the land in such a way that anyone, any one of them could be reasonably close to everybody. In other words, nobody would be without refuge. Nobody would be without protection. Nobody would be without safety. These sons of Korah grew up in that environment knowing of these cities, knowing, amen, the provision that they provided for people that were in need that may be perceivably, amen, guilty. And so no one's to be without refuge. Everybody was to be afforded some type of protection and safety. I believe that perhaps David, amen, also understanding the dynamics of all of this, whenever he bore his soul in Psalms 142, he began to talk to God about his own personal trouble. And he says, God, he says, I'm in a place right now, I'm a fugitive. I, I, I'm tucked back into the cave of Adullam as a fugitive. And the Bible says that David began to pour out his complaint to the Lord. And it makes it just that, that David poured out his complaint. For everybody that thinks, oh, I just feel like I'm complaining to God. It's okay. David poured out his complaint to the Lord and he admitted unto the Lord. He said, Lord, he said, I'm feeling like my spirit is overwhelmed within me. I'm feeling like right now where I am in life and being a fugitive and everybody out to attack me, I am overwhelmed within me. And he's saying, Lord, I can't find any help. There's not a man out there that it seems to be helping me. Amen. According to David, he's saying, Lord, he said, there's nobody that is caring for my soul. As a matter of fact, the best way that David David could describe it unto the Lord is that he said, Lord, refuge has failed me. See, that was speaking volumes because refuge was always to be an arm's distance of anyone, whoever they were, whatever their circumstance. But David was saying, "You, it's gotten so bad that it feels like, and I'm overwhelmed as though I don't even have access to refuge. Refuge has failed me. Amen. As a matter of fact, a, a book I read many, many years ago now called The Art of War, it describes in there the real tactics of war that if there's ever a time in war when there is no place of refuge at all on the battlefield they say that ground that that member of the army is inhabiting is called desperate ground because if they have no place to go no shelter no protection no place to hide then their feet is truly on desperate ground Hallelujah. I may be preaching to somebody today that feels like it's beyond your arm's distance, that sees no hope, no protection, no safety, and perhaps your voice is harmonizing with David's today, and you're saying refuge has failed me. But though David was in that deplorable state and felt like he was on desperate ground and everything was against him, things that should have been accessible to him and people that should have been accessible to him was fleeing from him, David was not without a refuge he finally cries out to God in that same psalm and said I cried unto the Lord I said thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living someone say amen David had come to 
the same conclusion as the sons of Korah. God is our refuge. You know what I've learned? In my Christian experience, sometimes things got to be subtracted from us before we really realize who he is to us. Sometimes the money bins got to go low so that I realize that he is my supplier. The health's got to get weak and they can't decide out how to fix me in order for me to know that he's my healer. Oh God, hallelujah. David says, I'm in a desperate place because I can't get help from humanity. That's all right, lift up your head, David, because when humans cannot help you and man doesn't know the answer to your dilemma, God is your refuge. The roads leading to the cities of refuge were by law to be kept in good repair. Others report that they would even ensure that the roads that were leading to the cities of refuge would be enlarged. I read in one place that sometimes they would make them every bit of 50 feet wide in order to make sure it could be found, in order to accommodate those that were trying. What were they trying? They're trying to make refuge easily found. They're trying to make refuge easily, amen, accessible. They say that bridges were built over any rivers or bodies of water that was in that direct path to the city of refuge. Why? They didn't want somebody that was in need of refuge have to be wading through water. Said, we're going to build bridges so that they can, with easy access, make their way to the city of refuge. If there were turns in the road, at every turn, they had, even back then, signposts that was staged at every turn in the road, pointing in the direction and screaming on the sign, refuge, refuge, pointing people to where they needed to go. I'm telling you this morning that the sons of Korah having an understanding about the cities of refuge. Amen. Turn that phrase of God is our refuge with understanding. What they are saying when they, they say that is this. He is accessible to each one of us. God is accessible to each one of us. What they're conveying in that moment is this. That our path to him is unobstructed. I've heard it before. I don't know if I can get to God. I don't know if God would accept me. I don't know. I don't know. Let me tell you, friend. The path to your refuge is clear. The path to your refuge is unobstructed. He's trying to make it easy for you to find him. He's trying to make it easy for you to get to him. He's trying to make it easy for you to find protection, safety, and comfort in him. There are signs pointing along the way. Refuge is that direction. They're pointing toward Calvary. They're pointing toward heaven. They're trying to let the one that's guilty know there is your refuge. Amen. Moses' days before the book of Joshua <clears throat> numbered closing he will not enter the promised land, we know, because of some things that he had done, smoting the rock rather than speaking to it. His days are numbered. But as he's nigh his death, he's going to ascend a mountain. He's going to die on the mountain. The Lord's going to bury him. No one knows where the grave of Moses is. That's scripture. The Lord's going to bury him. Got a shovel to bury the prophet of the Old Testament. His days are numbered, but he still had one last speech. To relay to the children of Israel before they crossed into the promised land. His speech was basically like this. You can read it in Deuteronomy 33. He basically let them know. Listen, I know we have suffered many hardships because we've been in a wilderness journey for 40 years. We left Egypt. We went out with a high hand. We went through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army drowned there. There's been times we've been without water. There's been times we've been without food. There's been times there's been fiery serpents. There's been all these things. So we, we have endured some hardships throughout our wilderness journeys. 
And he said, I want you to know, I, I'm not going to be able to go over into the land of promise with you. We're, our feet are right here at the Jordan. You're going to go on. But beyond Jordan, there's some unknowns as well. We've suffered something in the wilderness, but you're going to suffer some things over there too. There's some battles you're going to have to fight. There's some walls that you're going to have to march around. There's some things that you're going to have to do as well. But he kind of finalized it with this word in verse 27, Deuteronomy 33. He says, but the eternal God. He says, the eternal God is thy refuge. You know what he's connecting here? He says, the eternal God. In other words, the God that walked along with you and turned bitter water sweet for you to thirst, to quench your thirst. And the God that walked along with you and took you to the city of the, 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 the 12, I believe it was palms, and provided water for you. And the manna that fell from heaven and the quail that fell from heaven and looking to the serpent on the pole, taking care then of the plague among you. All the God, that eternal God, he said he's going to be thy refuge. Whatever you face on the opposite side of Jordan. Somebody doing all right? Because Jordan, Jordan means descent. Jordan's a river that, that, that is in a downward spiral. It's leading into the, the Dead Sea. It means descent. As a matter of fact, many people in the New Testament, you say they are being baptized in or around in the location many times of Jordan. Baptism has taken place there. Jordan is like a new life, you know. Jordan is passing from the east side, amen, into the west side. And when you got into the west side, you were in the land of promise. So it's like a whole dynamic change of life. It's like an entry into a new life. Like on the east side is where your past is, but on the west side is where your new beginning is. And Moses is trying to let them know, I know you've had help when you was on the east side. He said, but I want you to know, even after you've had this new life experience, you're still going to have some problems, but you're not going to be without help on that side of the river as well. He wanted them to know that the eternal God was their refuge. But listen to me. The sons of Korah that penned Psalms 46 and their idea about God as their refuge. It's more, it's more personal than just their knowledge about how the cities of refuge worked among the Levitical tribe, those six cities. It's more than that. It was a personal knowledge. It's not just how it worked in the lives of those that were guilty but it's how refuge worked in their own lives. That brought them to this realization that God working it out in my own life, I understand then he is our refuge. The sons of Korah are them who descended from a lineage of ancestors that in many regard in Numbers 16 sidestepped being associated with their own father's house and family. The story of Numbers 16 is the story that you have read before, perhaps, of Dathan and Abiram and Korah, who withstood the deliverer Moses. They thought Moses had taken the deliverer row upon himself when really it was bestowed upon him by God. In that burning bush experience, go to Egypt. You know, and get my people, set them free from the Egyptian bondage. It's not something that he said, okay, I'm going to be the deliverer. No, God says you're going to be the deliverer. So he had taken this on himself. But Dathan and Abiram and Korah, all these others, Korah in particular, who was a Levite, just like Moses was, was confident that, you know what, our purpose in life, you know, is important too. And it was. Everybody's purpose was. They were the ones that were having the difficulty and the problem. We're, we're just equally important as anybody else. Uh, we're all holy, just the same as you are, Moses. You went and made yourself the deliverer. They got it wrong. God had made him the deliverer. But God was going to prove unto Korah and their sons and the people that his choice was, of course, Moses as the deliverer and Aaron as the high priest. He was going to do this in the eyes of all the people. As a matter of fact, had they went the Lord's way, the Lord was just like Moses and Aaron, you just separate from the people and uh, just let me consume them in the moment. That was God's idea. Let me put, let me put it like this. Moses and Aaron stood in the gap for the people against the Lord. Lord's like, Moses and Aaron, leaders, just step aside, let me consume them. Moses like, no, 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 Lord, don't, don't be doing that. You brought them all out of Egypt. 
You know, what's everybody going to think if now you just annihilate them now that you got them out here? You know, it's going to have a real hard time getting guests to come to the tabernacle. And so, and so the end result was this, though, then according to the word of the Lord. He says, then people must separate themselves from the tents of wickedness of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. They must separate themselves. And if you separate yourselves from these people, then you will be spared. Only Korah and those that are along with him will be taken. And the Bible says in Numbers 26, it tells us that the sons of Korah died not and the reason why this is interesting is because in numbers 16 10 chapters earlier where this whole scenario of animosity between the sons of Korah and Moses and Aaron took place that whenever God was going to allow and this was a new thing the earth to open up and swallow Korah the Bible says before that happened that Korah came outside his tent door and he stood there with his wife And he stood there with his sons. The Bible says even his little children. They're all standing together. And the word of the Lord is this. That the things that, and this is the word that the King James uses. The the things that appertain or the things that pertain unto Korah. His goods, his family, the things that pertain to him are going to die with him. And yet ten chapters later, as the story is being recounted in Numbers 26... It says, notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. But they're standing right there outside of the father's tent with dad. They're right there with with their mom and dad and with the things that pertain unto him. Korah's then own offspring, his sons, they became separated, listen to me very carefully, from the physical known shelter protection and safety that they had in their mother and father in their own life they were separated from the shadow of the roof of the tent that they had always slept in that they had always went to for comfort they were separated in some way from the table that they had eaten at they they were separated in some way from the man that was responsible for being a co-player in their existence and helping bring them into the world because mom and dad and the things that pertain to mom and dad that tent and that structure and that shelter all of that was swallowed by the earth as it opened up the sons of Korah had a family as I said earlier that was quite responsible for sacred things of the house of God they lived their lives in many regards at the threshold of the house of God the secret place if you will was their dwelling place they had, they had often been cloaked by the shadow of the almighty but God's strength and his refuge qualities amen to the sons of Korah were never more evident to them than when the familiarity of their own home and their own family was in disarray and virtually lost and swallowed by the earth someone say amen because in that moment everything that was natural to them Everything that they were familiar with concerning tent, mom and dad and the things that pertain to their family, everything that was natural was taken away. The sons of Korah now are homeless. Their father's tent had been swallowed by the earth because of his rebellion. They are without a shelter. They are without protection. They are without safety. They are alone. Both mom and dad are taken, as it were, swallowed by the earth. And when we understand that all of their world is falling, apart it's in that context that we begin to read chapter 46 of Psalms their lives had been centered on sacred things but there was an awareness that came with the utmost purity as those sons pinned the word with all of that context as their background and they say God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore the sons will not we fear look though the earth be removed see that caught my attention this is written from the perspective of those sons amen even the lineage knowing that the the earth opened up the earth moved itself and caused a gap to swallow up our physical shelter our mom and our dad but somehow the boys that had been standing with them 
did not die. There's only one way, folks, that those boys could not die having been associated with the sin of their father, having been associated with the rebellion of their father, standing at the same tent, amen, where the earth opened up and swallowed him. There's only one way that those boys did not die. God was there. God was their refuge. They understood. The earth opened up. The earth moved. And they said, that's all right. The earth can move again. I'm not going to fear. My feet were right there, and I should have been taken as well. My feet were right there. I should have been taken by the earth as well. But something happened. God had mercy. God had grace. God is our refuge. My feet stood where their feet stood, but I'm here today and they're not. How God is our. Someone say amen. The earth opened up. It moved. It took the physical structure of their tent upon the earth. It took mom and dad. It took everything those boys depended upon for safety and protection. All of that was eliminated. Those boys in the lineage for generations understand this. God has been the refuge of the sons of Korah. Amen. They may have entertained the idea like David that perhaps refuge had failed them in that immediate moment. Right? I don't have nothing to lean upon. I don't have nothing to depend upon. Refuge had failed me, but they realized in the end that God was the refuge. David had confirmed it over and over again in the Psalms even concerning this. Psalms 57 and 1, he said, Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. In Psalms 9 and verse 9, he had said, The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And so the sons of Korah, not only affirm in the psalm that God, and you can read all of the psalm of 46, it's not that long, but they affirm in the psalm, not only is God in the midst of his people, but he's in the midst of the troubles of his people. Someone say amen. But there is another aspect of refuge that these sons of Korah are aware of. See, in the cities of refuge, again, the presumed guilty party that ran and sought asylum at the city of refuge was required, according to Old Testament law, they were required to remain within the perimeters and the boundaries of that refuge until the death of the high priest. Whoever the high priest was at that time, and these people that fled to these different cities of refuge, once they got there, they were to remain within the boundaries of that refuge until the death of the high priest. Had they moved outside of the boundaries and the limitations of that refuge prior to his death, the avenger of the blood could come, could take his life, because they stepped outside and underneath, out from under the shadow of refuge. They were to stay there until the death of the high priest. And when the death of the high priest would happen, they were free to go back to their localities and their homes and their families. But until then, they had to stay there to the death of the high priest. Look at this now, Numbers 35 and verse 25. Bear this out. You didn't want to get out from underneath that refuge prematurely. The Bible says, Numbers 35, verse 25, and the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge where he was fled. And he shall abide in it until the death of the high priest, which was anointed with the holy oil. Skipping down to verse 28, emphasizing again, because he should have remained in the city. It's talking of one that stepped outside of the city. Amen. When the death of the high priest hadn't taken place yet, because he should have remained in the city of his refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the slayer shall return into the land of his possession. I said all that to say this. There's another aspect that the sons of Korah understand about God being the refuge. Brother Mason, according to the Talmud, they say that if the high priest 
should die concerning these cities of refuge. If the high priest should die, all the people seeking asylum in the city of refuge would, note this, would automatically receive atonement for their guilt. What that means is this. If they had even accidentally taken the life of man, they were guilty. But the moment that the high priest at that time died, their guilt was annulled. Their guilt was atoned for by the death of that high priest. And so when the high priest died, and he, in terms, cleared the record with his life, they were free to go home. They were free to go home without being impacted or affected or uh, they were able to go unmolested, untouched by anybody. They could move outside the perimeters, if you will, of where they had been living life with their guilt because they were declared innocent the moment that the high priest died. See, you must understand this morning, the cities of refuge were not just tied to a location because they were in different tribes. They weren't just tied to a location and a place. They were tied to a person. They were tied also to the high priest that was serving at that time. That anointed one. The one that had been anointed with the holy oil. And so when the high priest died, the person was set free from their guilt and their refuge was not regulated by a locality. It was not regulated by a place. But at that point in time, it was regulated by the death of the high priest. The sons of Korah knew their father had rebelled. They knew he was guilty. They knew the price of his rebellion and everything that pertained to him was death. And yet they lived. The reality of their protection, the reality of their safety, the reality of their shelter, the reality of them knowing that God was their refuge was the reality really of atonement because the feet of the sons of Korah stood outside of that temporary tent of their father and shelter of their father and yet they died not when everything that pertained to Korah should have died. Yet the children of Korah died not because God is their refuge. Let me bring it home to us this morning. God is our refuge in this fact that each and every one of us that are sitting here today, guilty is written over our heads. Guilty is written over our lives. The fact of the matter is, along with all the rest of humanity, we should all die in our sins. We are guilty. Amen. We're just a part of this human family and being a part of that family, amen, automatically makes us guilty. Amen. But the great manifestation of God in Christ Jesus tells me this, that Jesus is that high priest Hebrew says. He's that great high priest that passed into the heavens. And whenever that great high priest stretched his arms out on Calvary and died, when the high priest died, that took care of my guilt. When the high priest died, that meant I was allowed to go away innocent and in that mode just like those sons of Korah understand my feet stood among those that are convicted but because of the death of a high priest God is my refuge you stay under the covering of the place until the high priest dies you stay don't step outside of it because it's going to take the death of the high priest to clear your name you got a long history of rebellion back from your father amen that's tainting your life and tainting your walk and the only way you can get out from underneath that is the death of the high priest but if he were ever to die it's going to clear your record if he were to ever die he 
his life is going to be for your life. Folks, that's what happened to us. That's what happened to us. That's what it means when you say, God is my refuge. He's more than just a protection and a shelter and a safety for you. He's your atonement. He's your buying back. He's the one that made amends for your wrongs. He's your refuge in that respect. Someone say amen. Hallelujah. He died for me. And the death of that high priest Jesus Christ freed me from the guilt of my sin. He is accessible to all. The path to him is made sure. All signs point to him. They scream, refuge. So if one were to ever wonder then, how could their feet stand there and them not die? If you ever wonder why the sons of Kor never died with such a blemished heritage that they had from their father. Why they never died when they had shared condemnation from the family that they were born from. It's because God was their refuge. The Bible says in Numbers 35 and verse 15. Speaking of the cities, these six cities shall be a refuge. Look at it now. Both for the children of Israel. And for the stranger. And for the sojourner among them. That everyone... That kill if any person unawares and may flee. You know what that means? So that everyone that's guilty. He, he's saying this refuge just isn't for the children of Israel. It's not like they got a corner on this thing and it's just for them. And it's not that it's just for the stranger. No, he's trying to pick out every dynamic, every people group of life. Strangers, sojourner, children of Israel. Everybody that's guilty. So this is a refuge for them. And that city is tied to a person. It's tied to a high priest that upon his death makes amends and atonement for their guilt. If you stand with me this morning. Each of us by virtue of being human, Brother Trout. It's not even about being a trout. It's about being human. Some people are like, oh, yeah, well, that's the such and such family. And they got a reputation. Well, guess what, buddy? You're part of humanity. You got a reputation, too. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. As a matter of fact, the scripture tells us in Galatians, and I, I always uh, think upon this often. It says that the scripture hath, this is the way it says. It says, but the scripture hath concluded all under sin. I know we say, you know, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But I think it's tremendous when Galatians says, but the scripture have concluded that all is under sin. We're guilty. Someone say, I'm guilty. Whew. I need atonement. I need somehow there to be amends made. Whew. Thankfully, the sons of Korah of Psalm 46 agree. I can stand. They could even stand because of their association with their father. They could. We all could. In the same moment that we say, I'm guilty. We can also say, but God is our refuge. But God is our refuge. I won't fear, they said, though the earth be moved, because we've seen this happen before. Though the earth be moved, God is our refuge and strength. I should be a dead man today. I'm telling you, I should be a dead man today. I'm not talking about physical death. I'm saying I should be a dead man today. But God God is my refuge. I should, I should fall under the same condemnation of all, every bit, the rest of humanity. But I attach myself to a city that was attached to a person, a high priest. That gave me, that gave me a route through his death. To take care of my guilt issue. To take care of my sin problem. He's not just a refuge, he's my refuge he's our refuge because of that relationship because that relationship
I mean, seriously, folks, just put you in the context of that day. Everybody's hearing these words, Brother Malone. Everybody is. Those things that pertain to Korah, earth's going to open and swallow. All these other people that had separated themselves from his tent and his own sons are standing there. They're saying, like, he said, if we separate, we'll be spared. They're there. Even, I don't even know their ages, but they're there they're, they're with that. He's done wrong. They're going to they're gonna pay for it. Yet when the earth is open and the mountains have shifted and the dust settles, there's some boys still standing there. What? We separate how? Because God is our refuge. I'm telling you right now, folks, there's some things in life and things sometimes that I even, as a pastor from a bird's eye view, see other people's lives. I wag my head and I'm asking, how in the world? And there's only one thing I can come to conclude. God must be their refuge. How is it that they have sustained? How is it that they have escaped? How is it that they have went on? How is it have they endured? There's been people equally as them that's been, how? Evidently, they've attached themselves to a city that's attached to a priest that attached himself to Calvary. Power our heads in this place. These altars are open this morning. There may be somebody here today. I know we're all with this banner of guilt. But there may be someone here today that's trying to find a path to a city. There may be someone here today that sees water and there needs to be a bridge built that they can cross over. They may be trying to find the signs to refuge. They're walking the road trying to get to that place because they need a place that's attached to a high priest. We're pre-adventure. If he died, and the good thing I got for you is that he already went to the grave one time and he's not going back, but the once was sufficient. It was once and for all, for all. He can clear you of your guilt. He can clear you of your shame. He can write innocence upon your life. And God can be your refuge. Not just in the day-to-day things that we experience in this life, amen, but in the sin that we contend with in this life. And God can be your refuge. Can we lift our hands all across this place this morning? Can we talk to God? Can we talk to God? If the high priest dies, you're going to be set free. If the high priest dies, your, your sins are going to be annulled. If the high priest dies, your guilt's going to be taken care of. You're going to be able to walk out of here without any danger coming up on your life. He's died, folks. He's already went to the grave and he rose the third day. He's given us life. Amen. He's given us the possibility to live, though we were absolutely guilty and associated with guilt. Hallelujah. Thank God. He is my refuge. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.